I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal with Navigator Limited. And I'm Lauren Rollheiser, a partner with Gowling WLG in Calgary. Welcome to the Energy Exchange, a four-part series brought to you by Gowling and Navigator, where Jason and I explore the energy transition in Canada and what it means for our industries, our climate change goals, and for our future. So Lauren, should we jump right in? I think so. There's a lot to cover. And uh, as you and I have discussed before, there's always changes going on in industry. So it's just which thread do we want to start pulling on first? It's so true. And we're going to have guests throughout this series, but today we're going to really spend some time setting this up. And when you look out there, Lauren, the future of energy really is is something that needs to be discussed, I think. And, And I think what we're trying to do is really have an honest discussion about it. Let's put away the ideology, let's put away the, the politics, and let's talk about what energy means for Canada and what the future looks like. Yeah, 100% agree on that. I mean, I you know, energy has always been an important element of our lives, obviously from just a physical perspective, but uh, a political perspective. But that's kind of shifted. It's not completely reversed itself, but it's shifted and evolved over time. So whereas it used to be mainly politically important because of its economic significance, now there's a much greater social significance to it all. And that economic significance remains and is coupled with the social significance. So really critical part of our day-to-day lives and more and more something that considered in respect of how we're going to evolve from where we were to where we're going in the future. Well, and you know, politics have been such a big part of the discussion of the energy transition in the country. And we're going to, we're going to unpack this notion of what transition is and what it means, because it clearly means different things to different people. But we have a really interesting political atmosphere right now, a, a real quagmire, if you will. On one hand, I think governments, both in Ottawa and provincial governments around the country, recognize the economic importance of energy production in Canada, whether that be renewable or whether that be uh, fossil fuel based. And at the same time, working with the industry is critical in order for Canada to meet its 2050 climate change goals. Well, the government's been really leading that charge federally. You see Mr. Trudeau has talked about that, and it's been a a big, really important plank of of his entire, uh, really, tenure as prime minister. Um, But at the same time now, we've got the energy industry really pivoting and and making it known that they have pivoted and pivoted quite a while ago. We see groups like the the Pathways to Net Zero, which represents six of the largest producers of, of oil in this country, saying they're committed to supporting Canada's climate change goal. They're committed to the idea that climate change is as a, as a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed by industry. And when you juxtapose that with the political atmosphere where people are talking about phasing out fossil fuels, you really see an interesting dynamic uh, developing work. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I do and the people I work with, I think it's, you know, ideologies are important. Obviously, that helps shape policy and where things go from a direction, um, sort of a, a longer term perspective. But the realism associated with what we do now and in the future, I think is kind of where I focus on. I'm obviously not a person who's a policymaker. I seek to help economic actors who make their decisions based on reality and realism of the the you know environment they find themselves in. And I think a lot of people that you know I talk to and I've worked with, um, they is somewhat of a trite thing to say, I suppose, but they really want to just know what the rules are and comply with those rules, follow those rules. If the game is set in respect of these are the parameters in which uh, people are going to play, they can make their decisions based on those parameters. And it's that confidence and surety of what the parameters are and you know, adjustments will always occur. But so long as those adjustments are are foretold, understood, sort of visible, they can make their business decisions. And I think 
this all kind of flows back to the fact that, you know, we're in a, a transitional period. Transition is change, I think is easily defined as change and change creates volatility. And volatility for the investment community is is often a great source of opportunity. And I think that's maybe with a glass half full, how I look at where we currently sit and where I think we're headed in energy um, in the energy future in Canada. Let's unpack that transition. If our listeners haven't figured it out, Lauren and I are going to come at this from similar but different perspectives. Obviously, Lauren, with his legal background and the great work that Gowling does in the sector, both unrenewable and non-renewable, we'll be coming at it from that side. And I'll be looking at it from a public affairs side and a public policy point of view. And and, and as we bring guests in throughout this series, uh, we hope to really unpack some of these key pieces. But Lauren, let's talk about the transition. Because transition is a loaded word. You know, when we talk about energy transition, we've, we've heard the government of Canada refer to transition in one sense. We've heard the government of Alberta and the government of Saskatchewan talk about it in another sense. I think when Canadians hear transition, it really becomes a matter of perspective of what they hear. Are we transitioning to net zero? Is the objective here to transition to a low carbon footprint so that we meet our Paris uh, Treaty objectives for 2050? Or is the objective to move away from fossil fuels and transition away completely. And I think depending on who you're talking to, certainly if you talk to my clients in the industry, they're very excited about the innovation, about the technology that's going to be developed, about the opportunities for jobs and for the economy within Canada, that a transition to a net zero or very low carbon production of fossil fuel uh, energy, uh, what that could mean for the future of the country. They're very excited about that innovation. There's a lot of investment going in it. When we talk Talk about clean tech, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people in Alberta would see that as, as a form of clean tech. That we also hear from the other side, which is we need to transition away from fossil fuels completely and leave them behind. And that is the only way to meet the objectives. Lauren, how does that sort of sit with you and, and your clients and the work you've been doing in this space? Yeah, I think, you know, and I I try to catch myself as being some sort of runaway optimist. Um because I don't necessarily consider myself that, but I, I start talking occasionally and think that that's maybe who I am in that I, I do think that an all of the above approach is what fits in with the realms of realism as far as what plans are being made now and, and into the future. So if you look at 2030 goals, you know I would call those very short-term goals versus 2050 goals. Specifically, Canada generally has a great resource base. Obviously, that is not something that every jurisdiction is blessed with. And we, we have that to be able to build off of, but it can be an and, and I think it's going to be an and. Uh, I think people want it to be an and, and we all benefit from the and renewables. That instead of, and I don't think anybody would advocate not advancing parts of the energy spectrum, which are renewable in that the energy business has evolved over time and it will continue to evolve. I think the thing that, that I am somewhat mindful of is for years, and, and I think for years to go, uh, energy use is going to expand. It's going to increase. And there's, it's, I, I've never really been in an environment where people talk about using less energy. I've always been in an environment where people talk about using more energy, though maybe in different kinds, different energy intensities, different formats. But as far as energy use writ large, I, I just see it only going in one direction on the graph. So it's an interesting, um, again, kind of the way I look at it is, you know, we're kind of doing two things at the same time. The pie is getting bigger, i.e. the the energy request uh, of society is getting larger. But we're also trying to change the size of the slices at the same time as we're getting the pie to be bigger. And uh, that has, as I've said 
previously, I think you and I agree on this, that volatility and that opportunity, which is producing out oil and gas, for instance, a lot of significant infrastructure investments have been made. Those are captured infrastructure investments. They're going to produce and produce out for the life of those assets. I don't know what future investments going to look like in those kinds of projects 10 years from now, but there are new investments, other investments. It's it's sort of maybe the way to summarize it is, it's the energy treadmill. It's which is a thing we've always been running on. You know, if you're a traditional oil and gas producer, you've produced the barrels that you have, but you're also always trying to ensure that you're restocking, you're finding and being prepared to develop those replacement barrels and those replacement resources. Now those resources are renewable or non-renewable. And I don't think anybody's opposed to that. I think we need to be thinking as a country, what is the opportunity? And it's not a it's not a one-way street. I think there are many ways to to for Canada to to meet the opportunity and the challenges that lie ahead in solving climate change, but also maintaining our quality of life and, and the economic opportunity. And for me, the fundamental question is, is here is do we want we know demand for oil remains steady? In fact, it's gone up recently, and there's some predictions that it may, may go down by 2030. But the reality is, is, is growth is continuing, demand is, is continuing for, for oil and the products that, that derive themselves from oil, plastics, the phones that we use, everything that we use in our daily life. So much of it is derived by fossil fuels. And it's something I think that, that it's important for, for all of us to understand as a starting point. We have to, to look at what our starting point is. And the starting point is a real dependence. And I think that's something you know, all sides of this discussion can can agree on. And, and I'm like you, I'm a, a bit of an optimist. And I, I'd rather start from a position of, of where we agree. So we know there's this reliance. So part of the question I think we need to ask ourselves as Canadians is, is there an opportunity for Canada, which has high environmental standards, it has an industry that says, hey, we're going to produce this stuff net zero. We're not going to damage, damage the, uh, the, the, uh, the environment uh, in the way people think. We're going to remove that carbon in the production. And they're looking at ways, in fact, to, to remove existing carbon that, that's already in the atmosphere, how to pull that back out. Um, so this is an industry that that is really at the forefront. Do we want a, a country like Canada producing oil with those very high envir- environmental standards um, that has proper governance, that does believe in inequality and equal opportunity for all, all people? Is that where we want to see a preferred barrel of oil come from? Or do we want to abandon that space and let perhaps other regions that are not as focused, maybe don't care about the environment or, or care about human rights, and have them lead the production of oil that, that's still going to be required and demanded by the by the world. And at the same time, Canada still can be investing and developing non-renewable resources to complement that energy mix, because it has to be an energy mix. And if you've got a lot of one, then we need to look at how we develop. But it seems to me that that would really kickstart that kind of investment in innovation uh, in this country could really kickstart a whole new era for Canada in terms of research and development and the the opportunities that flow from that economically, but also environmental. Right. I think that really picks up on the and theme that I I like to speak about. I like to try to promote, you know, I I think some of your comments uh, in particular related to ESG and standards in production, I think are, are really meaningful to me and meaningful to a lot of Canadians who have seen energy and I'll speak oil, specifically oil production in uh, carbon intensity drop significantly over time, taking ESG standards uh, to heart and really actioning those inside uh, the companies that are our major producers. I think, you know, it, it also sort of teases, at least in my mind, a discussion that we'll maybe have a little more in depth on ESG related issues in one of our 
uh, upcoming episodes when we talk about climate litigation and specifically the Dutch case in respect of an order for Shell to reduce its carbon uh, emissions. And I think that's an important, it's, it's important obviously for the decision itself. It's also important in respect to what kind of waves that's going to make beyond just that decision from the Netherlands. So uh, I, I think you've really kind of picked on, as I said, lots of things to talk about in the energy space, but I think you've put your finger on one that's really got a lot of movement in it and a lot of opportunity in respect of where it's headed. But also, Canada hasn't sat still in that area. It, it has already been making advancement in that area. And I think that advancement's being propelled from policymakers and, and the influence that they have on uh, investors and corporations. So now, Jason, I have an audio clip from Global News featuring an interview with Dale Bogen from the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Let's listen and see what he has to say about this very topic and the future of our energy industry. So we need to be planning for that future as well. We need to be planning for new sources of growth uh, in the face of risks to old sources of growth. That's, that's not partisanship. That's not ideology. That is sensible planning. It's almost like somebody found that clip for us specifically and tried to just underline some of the things we've been discussing. I mean, I, I'm very in tune with that message. I think that is very much in line with what a realist approach is I think it's very much in line with the attitude and, and approach of people I talk to regularly. It speaks to where we currently are today and where we're headed in the future. It, I mean, like I say, that comment makes a lot of sense to me and I think really rings true at this day and age. Well, it, and you know, when we look at things as an either or, you automatically have people entrenched on other sides. Now you've got friction, right? As opposed to working together to looking at solutions. So, you know, when I hear that clip, you know, I, I think of some of the things we've already talked about that, you know, looking at some of the, the, the old sources of growth. Yes, we do need to look at new sources, but at the same time, how do we take those old sources and, and repackage them or reinvest in them through innovation and the like to ensure that, that we are, in fact, meeting our energy needs, meeting our economic needs, but at the same time, fighting that very important fight for the future of our planet, uh, climate change. You know, I, I've talked about this with many in the industry who, who often sort of, I think, get a little frustrated uh, of how they're portrayed in, in uh, outside of Alberta, outside the industry, that they don't believe in climate change. They're not doing anything about it. And they're kind of looking around going, like, we've been trying to figure this out now for decades. And we're, we're all in on this. And, and I think seeing the industry take the initiative to stand up and publicly say, you know, we believe in climate change and, and we can be a part of the solution here, uh, I think is a really big step. And it's an opportunity for this country to start bridging the gap. You know, that friction I just described, having what, pitting one side or the other, it has to be either or. We have a shared goal to arrest climate change, to stop climate change. And, and to maintain our quality of life. So I, I think that is the goal we need to focus on in Canada. That's where we need to focus on in investments. That's where the discussion needs to have, because if that is the goal, then we should be working together. Putting, again, as, as was said, ideology aside, you know, are we trying to save the planet here? Or are we trying to end a certain industry? And the reality is, is that industry can not only contribute to solving climate change, but can spark other industries, new innovation, uh, you know, looking at hydrogen and other other forms of cleaner energy, then that's an exciting thing for Canada. And given our, our geography, given the breadth of energy that we have in this country, from hydroelectric in the east to, to, to the oil sands in the west, you know, the opportunities are really, really limitless. And it's something that really benefits all regions of the country. And it can be done in, in the name of solving climate change. 
Right. And, and I think there's the opportunity. I, I Maybe more than the opportunity, I think probably the existence or at least the start of a bit of a virtuous circle that's being created. And there's a demand for change. I think there's a recognition of the necessity for change that's being reflected in policy uh, adjustments and policy directives that is helping support technology improvements, which are then implementing that change. And I think that wheel keeps turning in that gain from technology improvements supported by those policy directives, which are demanded by society, help propel forward to getting the transition rolling in a more predictable fashion. I mean, that this is the part about change. It, shifting gears can be done smoothly and it can be done very roughly. And this is, to me, the magic associated with trying to do this effectively is gears are going to get shifted and we're trying to do it in an efficient and seamless way as possible. You know, I think you've, you've kind of, to me at least, touched on this a little bit. The people that have the expertise, the knowledge, primarily work in the energy companies of today. And those energy companies today are not at all ignorant to the society writ large and the, all the issues you and I have touched on. And it's their capabilities that are most likely to be the ones at the forefront for things like carbon capture and underground storage, high utilization of hydrogen and development, of which Alberta is uh, currently a high hydrogen producer in a relative sense to the rest of the world, bioenergy. Uh, you know, you've already mentioned solar, wind, Canada's blessed with significant hydro resources. You know, these are the people that when I think about how are we going to get this gear shifted, who's going to be working the lever are the people that have the knowledge capacity within industry to help change industry itself. And I think that's um, something that uh, needs to be acknowledged. You know, your, your comment about particularly kind of bringing it back to Alberta and how Albertans may or may not be or feel that they are viewed from outside. I think tough to speak for all Albertans, but I think certainly people see it going in the direction I think that you and I are discussing. It's not an either or, it's an and that we're talking well, there's about. There's goodwill and, and there's, there's good investment opportunities on both sides. The money is, is there to be invested. And, and I think really, you know, one of the things that needs to happen and what I'm hoping we'll achieve through, through uh, at least in, in the four-part series that we're doing, is it, kind of depoliticizing this discussion. We need to get to, to solutions and opportunity and, and not mean that if you're left, you think one way or you're right, you feel other way or like many Canadians are in the middle and are, and are trying to figure it all out. Uh, and I think that's the opportunity for Canadians right now is, is to depoliticize. And look, there's, there's lots of opportunity to do so. I, I can say, say honestly, I believe the industry needs to do a better job of telling the story. Telling the story of everything they are doing and the massive investments they are making. I think most Canadians don't realize that oil producers in this country are are not only investing in in their own technologies to get to net zero and putting aside competitive differences to work together, but they're also investing in renewables. And there's the uh, the, the opportunity. I think you know on the other side of the equation, uh, those that have been really leading the charge and you know spent a lot of time bringing this issue to the forefront, the issue of climate change. They have to be open to other ideas of how they can achieve that goal of arresting climate change as we talked earlier. Definitely, Jason. And in mentioning depoliticization, we have an audio clip from the government of Canada when Prime Minister Trudeau announced the pan-Canadian framework for clean growth and climate change. Let's take a listen. That's why, as a second point, this plan includes some strong measures aimed at accelerating a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Our goal is to have Canada powered by 90% clean energy by 2030. So to have Canada powered 90% by clean energy within the decade, 
that's a, a very audacious goal. What does clean energy mean to you, Lauren? And, and what do you think the prime minister means when he says it? And what do we think Canadians are hearing when he says it? Because those might yeah. be different things. Yeah, there, that is highly ambitious. He may be talking to people in the energy space about the feasibility of that, that I don't, you know, I haven't had these kinds of precisions he's had, or he's making it as an aspirational goal. When you say 90% clean energy by 2030, that is a, that's a strong ask. And, and it's, I don't say simply a strong ask in the 90% number. I, I mean, also in the context of a growing energy pie, like I talked about earlier, when you're trying to change the size of the slices and the size of the pie at the same time. But, but I think, you know, you've got to keep all the elements in mind in no particular order. <laughs> uh, I think we have a really good base in respect of hydroelectric. Hydrogen has significant capacity for growth. You know, if you look at bioenergy, I think there's also some really good opportunity there. You got to throw in things like geothermal. Solar has had some, you know, some good development as well as wind. And I think, I don't know, you know, if he's referring to this or not, but I have a hard time seeing how you can get to 90% clean energy without things like carbon capture and underground storage. Um, Which aren't going to be ready. They're not instant soup, right? I mean, this, this is technology that's being developed. These are opportunities that are going to require government investment at a time when governments are talking about ending fossil fuel sort of support. But again, if we're going to hit those goals, then, then governments and industry need to work together. See, Tim, for me, this is the kind of hyperbole that doesn't help. Right. right. Putting out a goal without a, a plan to get there and not bringing Canadians along. We need to understand our, in our society the implications of something like that. If we can't do it without oil and gas, then let's get on with that discussion and say, OK, how do we make sure that oil and gas is the cleanest form of energy that comes out of Canada or you know, cleaner than any other, other production in the world? Uh, if we're not able to have those honest discussions, because at the end of the day, it's going to come back home. It's going to come to your office, my office, uh, our homes, right? Consumers also need to have a responsibility uh, in this. We call those scope three emissions, right? Not the, the emissions that are produced when we're actually producing oil or producing other forms of, of energy, but when we consume them ourselves, you know, when we go to fill up our car, whatever the case may be. But consumers also have a role. And I think governments have to be a little more honest about the impacts uh, on consumers, both from a cost standpoint and from an economic development standpoint. Right. I, I think the more helpful word that he's used in that clip that we played is accelerating our reduction. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anybody is talking about having static or deceleration of reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, but it's accelerating. And that is actually something that's achievable. It's currently being worked on. It's an easier path or an understandable path as to how that happens. The idea of 90% clean energy by 2030, both of those numbers are, are a real challenge. Um, and again, as I think you've kind of pointed out, to say those numbers is one thing, to say those numbers without the, and this is the path we're taking is another thing. I, you know, I'm going to ask a question, Jason, to get your thoughts on, I don't know if you can have a conversation in the last two years without making mention of the pandemic. And to me, I, I'm interested in maybe sliding this in here and now, which is, you know, the pandemic has caused all sorts of problems in all sorts of ways. And one of those ways is uh, wreaking havoc on budgets. And th this to me, in my mind, sort of plays in both ways, which is Canada as a strong 
resource-rich nation has an opportunity to assist itself in its budgetary constraints with its resource development, which can sort of help with some of the costs and issues associated with the pandemic as we hopefully move out of it sooner uh, rather than later. But then there's also you know, there hasn't been a, a material drop in emissions associated with some of the restrictions that took place over the pandemic. And in fact, I think there's evidence that shows an acceleration and a pent up demand that's coming. So I kind of wonder, and from a policy perspective, I wonder if you've got views on sort of the availability of incentivization that the government's going to be able to offer, because you're kind of in a tough spot in that there's a lot of tough decisions that governments need to make. But on the one hand, you want to incentivize further acceleration of reduction in greenhouse gases and development of renewables as replacement for produced fossil fuels. But providing these incentivizations is not cost-free and pandemics have caused significant harm to the balance sheets of governments all over the world. And so it's not the restrictions and the availability of to it's be reality. able to do that. Yeah, the reality of it. It's, it's the reality. And, and that's, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's, that's where I was going in my previous comments. I think if we are going to really take the steps to, that you're talking about, then, then we need to be able to have honest dialogue. There have been impacts of the pandemic. I think two impacts that governments are going to have you looking at, you nail one is, is the budget. You know, there are major budget implications to what, is, what has happened. Um, we're going to be dealing with those economic repercussions. Governments will be, future governments will be dealing with them probably for a generation. We know that it's been, it's been talked about. So what role both renewable and non-renewable energy production plays in this country. We, we are a country that that has a, a lot of resources and you know that's gonna be one of the keys for us getting out. But the other pieces we've seen during the pandemic is people are getting getting angry. And I think the last weeks and months have really demonstrated that it's it's almost like Twitter has come come to life, right? Twitter used to be that angry place where people would go to vent. Well, now we're seeing it on our streets. We're seeing it in Western democracies all over the place. And that's an opportunity for governments to step up and start bridging this gap and having a dialogue, not about pandemics and restrictions and all that stuff. We need to move past that, that piece of the discussion and get to solutions. And you and I have talked in the lead up of this series about a carrot and, and a stick approach. And I think, you know, certainly there has been a lot of stick when it come, comes to environmentalism and, and and how we're going to achieve our climate change goals that that are shared, I think, by by frankly the majority of Canadians. But now it's time for some carrot. It's time for for less pointing of fingers, uh, to be honest and have that honest dialogue, and for for politicians and for industries, both developing new industries and existing industries that we've talked about here, to work together to figure out how we can can solve these problems. Because honestly, you know, the future of our planet and our quality of life are two of the most fundamentally important things for all of us in society, but for governments specifically. And if we can have that dialogue, the kind of dialogue that you and I are hoping to have over this, this series over the next three or four episodes here, hopefully we can make the progress that's needed. And I'm excited for our discussion. I think this has been a great start today, Lauren. Uh, there's so much, like you said at the, at the start here, that we can unpack so many strings to, to pull in. Looking forward to, to our discussions going forward. And, and listeners, hope you enjoy some of those strings that we're going to pull as we try to pull back the veil of energy production and and transition and ultimately climate change in this country. It's time for some honest dialogue. It's time for some straight shooting. Maybe we'll solve all the problems right here, Lauren. Well, at least we'll make a start on it. And I think we've uh, we've done uh, some work in at least getting the ball rolling in that regard. You know, there's so many facets of this. It just it's impossible to set aside any one element of the energy business and any one element of 
people's day-to-day life. That is why this is important. That's why it's interesting to me. Uh, and I think that's why it's interesting to so many people in the industry. You know, whether people are directly or indirectly employed by the industry, everyone is touched by this. This is a fundamental pillar of our society. It is a issue that cannot go ignored. And it's, as we've repeatedly said, and as the title of this, it is in transition. And that transition is important. We're all going to be impacted. And so as um, as you and I, with our backgrounds and our skill sets that we bring to the table, you know, we're not economists, we're not from the investing community, we are sort of policy and legal analyzers. I think you know we've got some things that I hope we can contribute to the discussion that will help people and guide them along in respect of where we're headed. And I think today has been a good start in, re- in that regard. We're talking, we're headed in the right direction, right? It's better than uh, taking our ball and go home. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of this discussion. We're obviously going to be bringing in some guest folks, future episodes to, to really uh, dive down in these key issues that we've explored today. We're looking forward to that discussion. Lauren, we'll chat soon. And that's a wrap on the premiere episode of Energy Exchange, a four-part series brought to you by Galling and Navigator. I want to extend a special thank you to my co-host, Jason Hatcher, and his team at Navigator, including Catherine Moore, Kayla Duty, and Zoe Kerstead, and to Galling's Anne Derby and Ian Mondro for their support in the production of this episode. Stay tuned next week for episode two, and thanks for listening.